I stand if you're able. Turn uh, if you have a Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 19. Or actually, we're uh, just the last verse of chapter 19, then um, chapter 20. In chapter 19, Jesus says, "Encounter the rich young ruler," and most of you know how that goes. Um, he challenges uh, this young man to divest himself of everything, and the young man says, uh, "I'm not going to do that." And uh, and then that makes the disciples uh, ask questions. And Jesus says, um, it is extremely hard for anybody who's got a lot of stuff to go to heaven. Uh, very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and then Peter says, of course, Peter says, well, we've done that. Uh, we left everything uh, and followed you. And Jesus makes uh, some promises there. And he finishes chapter 19 saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about glorification, right? And the amazing thing about glorification, these great and awesome promises uh, that for all who belong to Jesus are, are going to experience, uh, what we're going to explore tonight is that the most unlikely people are going to experience glorification. The last are going to be glorified. The, the people that you would least expect are going to experience um, this. So we read in chapter 20 of, uh, of Matthew, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Now about the third hour, he saw others idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Now going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said, well, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, uh, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Begin with the last and work your way to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would get more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am you doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to to give to this last worker as I give to you? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then Jesus says it again. So the last will be first and the first last. This then is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated, please. The last will be first. The last will be first. You know, um, we hate grace. We despise grace. We talk a lot about it. Um, we write a lot of books about it, right? I bet I could, uh, we, could, we could make a competition out of the first one. I could find 10 books with grace in the title, right? Wouldn't take very long at all to do that uh, in the back uh, of the room. Um, we, uh, we, um, we name our children Grace, right? Uh, or if, in, if you're in the South, Grace Ann. Um, 
and we, um, uh, and we sing about how amazing um, grace um, is, but we hate um, grace. Now, you might say, who in the world would hate grace? Well, Jesus already told us, didn't, didn't he? The first will be last, and the last first. So who, who hates grace? The first. The first hate grace. The first hate the idea that they're going to the back of the line, and people for whom they are far better are going to the front of the line. We hate grace. Maybe this illustration will help. His name is Steve Tuami. He was 25. James Doxeter was 14. Richard Guerrero, 22. Anthony Sears, 26. Raymond Smith, 32. Edward Smith, 27. Ernest Miller, 22. David Thomas was 22. Curtis Slaughter was just 17. Errol Lindsay, just 19. Tony Hughes, 31. Conorak Simfasoni was only 14 years old. Matt Turner was 20, Jeremiah Weinberger, 23, Oliver Lacey, 23, and Joseph Bredehoff was 25. These 17 uh, young men were the victims of one of the most notorious serial killers in United States history, uh, a young man himself from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, named Jeffrey Dahmer. In 1992, Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested and convicted of torturing, murdering, and in many cases cannibalizing um, these uh, 17 young men. He was uh, sentenced in 92 to uh, life in prison. In, um, in 1994, a, uh, another prisoner beat him to death in prison with a mop handle. But not before Jeffrey Dahmer repented of his sins. Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized um, in prison. Jeffrey Dahmer became a voracious Bible reader. Jeffrey Dahmer was discipled by a pastor uh, who met with him every week um, in the prison. Jeffrey Dahmer exhibited a, an exemplary Christian life and an extraordinary um, change. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer became the assistant to the chaplain in prison so that on November 28th of 1994, that when Jeffrey Dahmer's life on this earth ended and he stood before Almighty God, he was declared righteous. And holy in the sight of God and a cherished part of God's family, in fact, a son of God. The exact same sentence, the exact same sentence that you'll receive, the exact same accolades that you'll receive if you belong to Jesus. And you know, if perchance you don't belong to Jesus, or, or maybe to make it even more relevant, Suppose you had a grandma, and suppose your grandma was the um, greatest person you knew on this earth, and grandma made, uh, took care of her neighbors, and grandma made um, casseroles for all the sick, and grandma was, uh, you know, taught um, uh, children. I mean, grandma was uh, the picture of a, a well-lived life, except for grandma never put her faith in Jesus. That means that when grandma and Jeffrey Dahmer 
head into glory, the grandma will experience eternal damnation, and Jeffrey Dahmer will live forever as a cherished child of God. How do you feel about that? How do you feel? He ate people. Um, so, um, Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like. People who you don't think are going to be in the kingdom of God are, and people you think are going to be in the kingdom of God, they simply aren't. A friend described uh, a, a witnessing a fox hunt. I'll never forget his description because he said it, it was amazing, you know, they, they let the dogs out. The dogs got the scent of the fox. And when the dogs, magnificent dogs, charged out uh, you know, uh, across the, the meadow uh, in search of the fox, the first group of riders in the fox hunt went out. And, uh, and they all had matching um, outfits. They were all dressed in sort of royal red. And uh, these, were the, these were the wealthy. These were the upper crust. This was old money. This was the landed uh, gentry. These were... These were uh, the powerful, the rich, and the elite. Even amongst them, there was a bit of a social um, um, order. And uh, they went out, and, and their horses were more valuable than the, the nicest car you'll ever own. And, uh, and the horses were even dressed and outfitted. Their saddles and their, the, 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 uh, the whatever else horses wear, you know, were... Um, uh, was spectacular, and the um, and then they went out sort of with military um, precision as they uh, marched out. Well, then the next group, he said, that went on the fox hunt were almost as impressive. Um, they wore brown matching outfits. Their horses were awfully good too. Uh, they weren't quite as crisp, but uh, but that was an impressive. You know, the original group went out with trumpets playing. They even had musicians accompanying them uh, as. They went out in the second group, not, not quite as much fanfare. And then he said the third group went, and, uh, and, and they didn't have matching outfits at all. And their horses looked like, well, they weren't even dressed that great. Their horses looked like they could have been pulling the milk wagon, you know, uh, the day before. And, uh, and they, they weren't very, matter of fact, they looked like they were racing to see who could get to the fox first. And uh, there was sort of a pell-mell, helter-skelter quality to the way they rode out. It looked more likely that they were going to collide with each other uh, than they were going to uh, have any sort of co coordinated hunt. He said he watched all this, all sort of went out before the people who were gathered watching all of this. But then the fox did what apparently foxes do. It, it, it outfoxed them. And uh, it um, actually ended up on the hillside on the opposite side of where they were all headed, which meant that all the riders now had to turn around which meant that coming back by the viewing station, guess who was in front? It was all the nobodies. All the nobodies were in front. And uh, he said, you know what he could tell is when the third group came and it was all the wealthy and all the important who were supposed to be in the front, they didn't like it one bit. They didn't like it one bit at all. Listen, Jesus is warning the disciples in this passage, if you think you're in front, and believe me, they did, Remember when the rich young ruler says, I'm not going to divest myself of my stuff. What does Peter say? Lord, that's exactly what we've done. We've done exactly what you asked us to do. So Jesus is warning the disciples, if you think you're in front, and they did, then you are not. The narrative of the kingdom of God is not a story of hard work that merits favor. It is a story of amazing generosity 
and irritating grace. Uh, and we are so resistant. You know, it's, very, it's very rare in the Bible that Jesus would just look at people and say, you are filled with self-righteousness. And they would go, by golly, you're right, you know. <laughs> we are so resistant um, to seeing our, our self-righteousness. It is so toxic in our system, and it so blinds us that it takes, uh, it takes uh, a deft hand, right? Um, it, it's like David, King David, we know he steals a woman uh, from his best friend. He steals his best friend's wife. He impregnates her, and then he murders uh, her husband, his best friend, and he, uh, he's resistant to any responsibility for that until God sends a messenger to him, and the messenger doesn't say, David, you're a selfish pig. I mean, look at what you've done. No, the messenger says, I've discovered a great injustice in the kingdom. A, uh, a, uh, a, a powerful man has preyed on a poor little family who had, a, who had a little lamb as a pet, and he had all the flocks and all the meat that you could want, but he wanted that little lamb, and he killed their little pet, and he put it on a skewer, and he barbecued their, their little Bambi. And, um, and David's outraged, right? And what, is, uh, and what does David uh, say? This man, should be, this man should be killed. And then Nathan the prophet leans over and says what? You to man, right? It's you, David. And that's my prayer as we study this passage, that, uh, that, that, that we, may not, we may at this moment not see the depths of our self-righteousness, but in the kindness of God, uh, as God's word, as the Holy Spirit opens our minds and hearts, we would say, oh, oh crap, it's me. This is about me. So, uh, what's this parable that Jesus reads uh, when he says the first will be last and the last um, first? I mean, what does that, um, uh, what does that mean? Um, Jesus tells a story, right? Uh, just like uh, Nathan did. Jesus tells a story to help us. There's a vineyard owner, and the vineyard owner has um, a vast vineyards, and the harvest uh, time has come. Uh, it's been wildly fruitful year, and uh, you got to get the fruit in, and you got to get the fruit in fast before it uh, gets overripe, and he needs lots of laborers, so he goes to the um, town square, and he to find day laborers, and he hires a, a, a whole bunch of day laborers, and he, he negotiates when he hires them in the morning. The workday is from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's daylight. That's all they can work. It's a 12-hour workday. They agree on a denarius for a day's, a day's wages. It's a fair day's um, wage. And they, they virtually skip out into the vineyards, thrilled with their work. They're gonna have, they've got work. That means they're going to feed their kids, right? That means uh, they've got the means to take care of their families. They've got the dignity of work. They're overjoyed with the grace and kindness of the owner that he would hire them. So they go out and they get to work. Well, guess what? As the day goes on, the owner realizes, I need more workers. So at nine in the morning, he goes and he hires more. And off they go out uh, to the field. At noon, he goes back to the town square and he hires more. Then it starts to get even more interesting because now the day's half over, right? Six hours of the day, uh, laborers have worked. But it, the, the scriptures say, Jesus tells us in this story that at three in the afternoon, he goes and hires more. Now he's hiring people who are only going to work for what? Apparently these were the hipsters, just three hours, right? And uh, uh, a day. And then 
At five o'clock, he goes and hires even more. Who hires people to work for one hour? He hires people at five o'clock. He says to them, by the way, he says, why aren't you working? It's the end of the day. Why aren't you working? They said, you know, they were probably the lame. They were probably the weaklings. They were probably the, uh, the people who didn't look very productive. Nobody wanted to hire these people, right? They said, nobody will hire us. He says, I'll hire you out into my field. So, so an hour later, the workday's over. And all the workers lines up. He sends his foreman out to, uh, to um, deliver the payroll, right? And, uh, and the one-hour workers go first. Now, remember the deal? 12-hour workers get one denarius. And the one-hour workers come to be get paid, and he gives them one denarius. He gives them a full day's wage for one hour's work. Now, imagine if you're a 12-hour worker at that moment. What are you thinking? Sweet! Because if they got a denarius for an hour's work, we're going to get... Vanderbilt, we're, we're, we're going to get 12. And, uh, and, and, but, but when he gets the three-hour workers come forward, they get, uh, they get a denarius. Well, you're still thinking, okay, 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 it wasn't as good as we thought. We'll get four denarius. We only thought we were going to get one. We're going to get... And then he pays the um, six-hour workers, and he pays the nine-hour workers one denarius. And when he gets all the way to the 12-hour workers, they get one denarius. Now they're what? Now they're ripped, aren't they? What? This isn't fair. We've been in the hot sun all day long. We bore uh, the labor. We did the work. We, we worked harder than anybody else. This isn't right. And what does the owner say? Did, did, we, not, did we not have a contract? Did we not negotiate this? Have, have I done any less than what was promised? Didn't I give you exactly what we said? Do you, do you not think I have the right to do with what belongs to me, whatever I want to do with it? Do you begrudge me being generous uh, to the other workers? And Jesus says, you see, the last will be first, and the first will be last. All right, so let's apply this. Ready? Here we go. Let's apply this. The three things that, um, uh, three applications, and the first is, is that uh, recognition that uh, we are labor. We must remember that we are labor and we are not management. We are labor and we are not management. We learn that uh, from this parable. The owner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And their answer was what? No. <laughs> no, you're not. And he says, do you, do you begrudge my generosity? And the answer was what? Yes. Yes, we do. So I want you to see four things uh, in, in this um, application. First of all, what do we learn about the owner here, essentially? First of all, clearly God is the owner, right? God is the owner uh, of everything. And we forget that. We forget our um, place. We forget we're creatures and we are not uh, the creator. Romans 9 uh, 20 and 21. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? We forget he's the potter. We're the clay. He's the boss. This is my father's world. We forget that we're labor. He's, we forget we're creatures. He's the creator. So you got it? It's the first thing we learn. God's the owner. The second thing we learn in here is that the owner is just. God is just. 
God does exactly what he said um, he would do. By the way, I, I, um, I, I'm going I'm to jump back in just a second about God being the owner. You know, it strikes me. Um, do you think that anybody is an atheist because the evidence leads them there? Can you disprove the existence of God or can you prove the non-existence of God? Of course you can't. You guys know that. Nobody's an atheist because the evidence leads them there. They're an atheist because they want to be free agents. Man, man loves atheism because he hates the idea of God. God. If God is the owner, then guess what? You're not. If God is God, you're not. So there we have it first. God's the owner and God is just. God uh, treats everyone Justly, The workers got just what was promised. There is no injustice with God. Now, part of the North American cultural religion says that if God is just, he has to treat everyone the same, which is, of course, ridiculous. I mean, A, did God treat Israel and, uh, and the Jebusites and uh, all the nations around Israel and Egypt and the uh, Canaanites the same? Clearly not, right? There was grace and favor shown to the Israelites that wasn't shown to other nations. God um, says, I will have mercy on whom I have uh, mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God gives everyone justice. God treats everyone fairly. But that, listen, even parents don't treat their children the same. And they shouldn't. You have a child born with cerebral palsy. That child's going to get attention and money and care and all sort of things that the other siblings may not um, get. Every child is unique. Every child presents uh, different challenges and, uh, and needs. God never promises to treat uh, us the same, but God never shorts anyone. And God will give to every person exactly what they deserve. Do you hear that? Don't be misled about uh, grace, grace, grace. God is going to give to every person exactly what they deserve. Um, if you die without Jesus and you stand before God and you present God the resume of your life and your performance, then you will get what you deserve and it will not be a pretty end. But if you stand before God and you present God the resume of Jesus and you stand there fully dependent on the performance of Jesus in your stead, then you will get what you deserve because you'll be judged on the merit of Christ. That's why the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? And gracious and generous. That's not what it says. He is faithful and just. It's a matter of justice. Here is the, here's the ground of our security, of our salvation. You stand before God, uh, you will be acquitted. You have to be acquitted. The justice of God is at stake. Jesus has paid for your sins. Jesus has lived the life that you couldn't live. You'll get exactly what you deserve if you belong to Jesus. Got it? So the owner is the boss. God is the owner. God is just. And third, God is generous and kind. The owner, why does the owner hire people to work three hours and one hour? Not because he needs grapes picked, but because those people need work, right? It's the kindness of God. Um, they're hungry. They're unemployed. They're desperate. They're hopeless. But the owner cares and he gives them work and he pays um, wages they don't even earn. Um, 
He hires them not for what they can do for him, but what, for he can do, he, what he can do for them. Matt LaChapa, just a couple months ago, signed a contract with the San Diego Padres. You know the San Diego Padres? They're a professional baseball team. I don't, I don't know that San Diego is a long way that we have many Padres fans here, but I'm a huge Padre fan because they're the only professional team named after the mascots of preachers, right? Padres, preachers. You apparently are unmoved by that. Um, <laughs> it's like uh, in college, the Providence Friars, you know, same thing. I'm a big Providence fan. I like rooting for preachers. I know some of you are into demon deacons, uh, but I'm much more, much more in favor of Padres. Well, Matt LaChapa um, was signed to his 19th straight one-year contract with the San Diego Padres. Matt LaChapa is in a wheelchair. Matt LaChapa was a 19-year-old uh, baseball player in Class A for the Padres Class A Farm Club in Rancho Cucamonga, California, when he had a heart attack. And uh, he has been, um, was so damaged that he is uh, in a wheelchair. So, so the San Diego Padres pay him. He doesn't play baseball. He's never played baseball since. For 20 years now, they've uh, employed him. They give him a baseball contract um, so that he will have life insurance, so that he will have the means to support his family. They're in the business of entertainment. They've got to fill the seats with people. But they do this for him, not for their benefit. You got it? The owner is merciful. And the last thing we, we, we want to note here is that God's kindness is offensive um, here. The, the, God is the owner, and God is just, and God is generous, and, and the kindness of God is offensive. We find God's grace distasteful. Um, we don't like that he gives the one and three hour workers the same. It, it really runs right against the American um, ethos. Um, this runs right against the, the, uh, the, the values that our culture holds um, so dear. You get what you deserve. You get what you work for. You pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And we find it distasteful all the way throughout, um, um, you know, historically. Listen, imagine you're um, a Dutch Christian and, uh, and World War II has ended and you discover that the uh, allies have sent chaplains to Nuremberg to minister to the Nazi high command. Your fiancé is dead. He died in a Nazi prison camp because he was smuggling Jews. Your family is dead because they didn't survive a Nazi camp because you were hiding Jews. But into Nuremberg go Protestant chaplains, and this happened, by the way, amazing book written by a Lutheran chaplain at Nuremberg, witnessing to the Nazi high command, where a number of them are converted, converted repent of their sins, and come to faith in Christ. How do you feel about that? It's exactly what the Bible um, talked about, uh, didn't it? We already, we already had a mention about uh, Nineveh. Um, what happens when God goes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh? What does Jonah say? I'm not going. And the reason I'm not going is because what? I hate those people. And you know what? I'm not, and it's not just that I hate those people. You know why I'm not going to Nineveh, God? Because, 
because I don't like you, because you like those people, and I know you. I know what you're going to do. I'm going to go there and preach, and they're going to be converted, and they're going to be in the kingdom of God, and I don't want them, not in my family. What happens in the New Testament? Jesus tells a story about two brothers, right? One brother runs away with his dad's money and spends it on booze and broads, right? Partying. And, uh, and the other brother, he's uh, the hardworking. He's, uh, he's the first. He's a 12-hour he's worker, right? I mean, he's in the fields the whole time. And when dad comes home, when the brother comes home and dad welcomes him with a feast, this brother is incensed. You know, you know if, the, if the father had gone out to the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, and you know, if he had said, I got good news and I got bad news, which do you want first? And the older brother had said, give me the good news. The good news is we have recovered all the money that I gave your brother. Everything that your brother took and squandered, we have recovered all that money. Okay, what's the bad news? Well, your brother's dead. You know what he would have said? What's the bad news? Right? We got the money back. That's what matters. He had no affection for his brother. He deserved it. Anything that that father, you see, he's so ticked that the father welcomes his younger brother back. Why? Because the money that's going to go to the younger brother is coming out of whose pocket? His. It's part of his inheritance. He's supposed to get all the rest. We hate the, we hate the generosity of God. You know, the word prodigal means promiscuous. Who's promiscuous in, this, in that parable? God is promiscuous. He's promiscuous with his grace. He gives his grace to, to the utterly undeserving. You remember when Zacchaeus, Jesus goes through Jericho on his way to die, and a crowd is there to meet him, and he plucks a guy out of a tree, right? A guy who was a tax collector, the guy who was the most hated man in town, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house to dine with you, and the crowd does what? They booed. The crowd hissed. If that's the kind of God you are, we're not interested. We hate the grace of God. When you are a 12-hour worker, you hate the grace of God because he gives it to one-hour workers, and it makes us incensed. In our community, maybe every community has a most hated person. In our community, it's a guy named John Cooey. John Cooey broke into a home and took a little girl out, horribly abused her, and then buried her alive till she died, suffocated. John Cooey was arrested. He was put in the county jail awaiting you know, the further uh, judicial proceedings. Imagine if Jesus came to our community and all the politicos and all the mayors and all the big shots and everybody was there to meet him and he walked right past them and maybe he gave a little speech, got a key to the city and walked right past them and said, no, 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 that big banquet you've got set up for me, I'm not doing that. I'm going over to the jail. I'm going to have lunch with John Cooey. What would the people in our community have thought? wouldn't even touch him. If you get a chance, I hope you strangle him to death. I hope you bury him alive. Now, you know what? Unfortunately, this is so much my heart. 
Um, I, I do not like who God invites to the party. My, my guest list to the party is completely different than his. I, I remember meeting not long ago a woman who came to our church. She'd actually moved from Jackson, Mississippi to our community. Her husband was a doctor. She was a cute, perky little doctor's wife. And uh, she just had two kids, two little boys, twins. They had a little double stroller. It was so adorbs. And, uh, they, um, and one of her children was named Tucker, which was uh, um, awesome because I have a son named Tucker. And the kids were cute. And the kids were dressed to kill. And the, and the cute little pastor's wife. And I, and I met her first time in church. I'm just thinking, this is my kind of member. Um, and then... And then uh, just about the same week, I'm, I'm sure I met uh, somebody who attends our church re- regularly. She's a, a lesbian, and, uh, and she really likes me. She likes me a lot. And uh, so when the service is over, I'll be greeting people, and I'll hear her coming. She's, um, she's large, and uh, she's from Appalachia-like, so she'll say, Rye! Rye! I love you, Rye. And she wraps me in her arms and gives me this big bear hug, and I'm thinking, I want the doctor's wife as a member. This is the kind of members I like in our church. Got it? Our God is promiscuous with his grace, and we don't like it. Second, I want you to see that we don't like it because we have delusions of merit. We are irritated by God's generosity by those, you know, he gives his generosity and kindness to people who haven't worked hard enough. Problem is, we think we've earned it. We think we are 12-hour Christians. To join our church, you have to profess that you believe in grace alone, that you have no merit, that it's faith alone in Christ that, uh, that you believe. And so we say we believe in grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. That you have absolutely no merit. When we receive communion in our church, we come forward and we put our hands out like this. What are we saying? I brought nothing to this meal. I bring nothing to God. I contribute nothing. I come as a beggar. I come empty-handed. I need Jesus. So we profess that I have no merit. That I might be found, Paul says, having no merit of my own but only the merit that comes to me through Jesus Christ. We profess we have no merit, but we do not believe it. We believe we have merit. I'll tell you, there's two ways you can tell, and the first way you can tell is uh, our entitlement, our sense of entitlement. Think of how mad we get with God when our world doesn't work, right? When our prayer requests are denied. I saved myself for marriage, God. The other kids were sleeping around but I kept my virginity. I saved myself for marriage. Now, now I can't have any children. They're having kids like rabbits. And I can't have kids. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. You really took good care of me. I homeschooled my kids. I sent my kids to Christian school. I paid the sacrifice. I got them involved in, uh, in all the right uh, activities. We had, we had devotions at dinner time in our household. Who does that anymore? And now my kids don't walk with you. Thanks a lot, God. You see, we say we don't have any merit, but we act entitled. We act like we have merit before God, and he owes us. And when the one-hour workers show up and get treated like they're the employee of the year, 
That is not fair. What a, a family in our church, they had two sons who were pastors. It was their righteousness. It was their merit. Their sons, they raised their sons right. They were pastors. Then one of them went and left his wife. He not only left his wife, he took up with another man. And they were furious, particularly the woman. And um, she hated her son for what he did. She would have nothing to do with him. He was not welcome in her home or in her life. She wouldn't take his phone calls. She wouldn't even speak to him. And she never took communion again in our church. Because as mad as she was at her son, she was far madder at who? At God. Because she told me, I raised him right. We did it right. We did everything right. And this is what God does to me. You hear that sense of what? Entitlement. You can tell our, our merit, we believe we have merit by our sense of our entitlement. You can tell because we have a critical spirit. I mean, if you have no merit, on what basis do you look down your nose at anybody else? If you have no merit, you have no merit. But we are good at looking down our nose at other people, right? Gosh, have you seen the way she dresses for church? You'd think it was a cocktail party. You know, um, do you see the way they spend money? Oh my goodness. There's hungry people in the world, you know. Um, we, I wish they disciplined their kids. Their kids just run amok. We, um, we, we were critical of the Kardashians. We're critical of the Biebs, right? Um, we find people in our culture all the time that are just expressions of our self-righteousness. You know, um, imagine, um, imagine you and Jeffrey Dahmer sitting together in, in, uh, before God. And God's kind of focusing on you, and he says, um, you know, you really have been kind of greedy, and, and you're stingy with your money. You just don't, you're just really very tenderhearted towards other people. And, and you're prideful. Gosh, you're really prideful. You're kind of looking over at Dahmer, you know, all the attention's on you. And God says, and, and, and you're been a, you haven't been a good friend at all. I mean, you're self-absorbed. You just, you just don't even take care of your friends. At some point, you know what you'd do? You would say, are you kidding me? Of course I'm not a good friend, but I didn't eat them, right? What about him? What about him? I'm better than he is. Deep in our hearts, we believe that the people God, uh, you know, that saving us is just. And there's other people that God includes that is wrong. And you will not get the gospel until you understand that you are not the 12-hour worker. You are not the 12-hour worker in this story. You are not even the one-hour worker. You didn't work at all. And nobody deserves the grace of God less than you do. I was preaching recently on a message where I talked about kids being alienated from their parents. And this visiting couple came out and they almost said upon me, they said, that's exactly what we're experiencing. Our kids will have nothing to do with us. All our kids are sexually active. That's not the way we taught them. It's not the way we raised them. And so we tell them all the time how God is going to punish them 
how God's gonna, uh, is not happy and their lives are not gonna thrive and God's you know, gonna get them. And, uh, and, and so we know what it feels like to have your kids hate you. And uh, I remember looking at him and I said, I just wanna ask a question. If, um, if someone's guilty of adultery, do you think another person who's guilty of adultery should um, be critical of them, should be harsh with them? What would you think of, of one adulterer going to another adulterer and being really critical of them? They said that would be terrible. They ought to clean up their own life. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I am talking about you. I mean, they would have killed me if they could have. They would have killed me if they could have. We hate grace until God opens our eyes to see we are not the 12-hour workers. We are the last. We are the least deserving. And that's really the last point I'm going to make is um, if we think it's hard to believe that Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven, we don't get it. What's really hard to believe is that you are. What's really hard to believe is that I am. I can't even believe that I get to, to stand up here and, uh, and, and preach before you unbelievable. How do we, the obedience-addicted, judgmental, scorekeeping, performance-oriented, self-validating, approval addicts, how are we ever going to get it? Um, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer might be your small group leader in heaven because he's the last, because he has no, he has no delusions that he has any merit. He knows that all he had was need that he had no hope except for the mercy of God. And may God open up our eyes and help us to see the same. I'll just tell you, um, one of the dangers in this passage, the danger of the disciples is, Peter says, we're, we did it. We've left everything to follow you. You know, we're RUF. Some of you have been Christians all your life. I've been following Jesus for a long time. There is danger in long service because we think Somehow or another, we start to think we have merit. Boy, I'm sure, uh, I am sure guilty of it. I remember recently, I, um, um, I remember things were really going well at church. Things were popping. Uh, ministry was good. I even got ex uh, invited to speak at this um, conference where they were the largest, one of the largest groups I've ever spoken to. There were thousands of people. And when I spoke, I'll never forget, it's the most electric room I've ever spoken to. They, uh, they kept applauding. They kept interrupting with applaud. There were shouts. I mean, there was, it, was, it wasn't really a Presbyterian group. And uh, <laughs> they, they um, I mean, if I said something that had a hint of funny, people were falling out. Um, I mean, and of course, I got into it. You know, I was alive. This is like awesome. And, uh, you know, I was moonwalking across the stage before we were done. You know, I mean, it was just... It, it was just happening. People lined up when I was uh, finished. And I remember driving home. And when I got home, uh, there was a, actually our denominational magazine had an article that I had written. And, uh, and I, I remember thinking, coming off this big event, uh, there's a, I'm, I'm a front page story in a denominational magazine. I mean, I am smoking, you know. <laughs> I am a hot ticket. And, uh, and I remember they asked before this article if, if uh, I would send a picture in, you know, they could include 
with the article. So I whipped that magazine open because I wanted, you know, and, and I knew that they didn't put pictures and they were actually drew caricatures. You know what a caricature is? Um, like if you did a caricature of Donald Trump, what would they focus on? Right? Yeah, that, that orange thing. And uh, if, um, if they did, uh, you know, some people would be their really big ears or really big nose. Or they take kind of a prominent feature and they just blow it out. So I opened that magazine and this is what I found. <laughs> yeah, that was the end of my big head. Notice, <laughs> notice what God was saying to me. What's your most prominent feature, Cortese? The size of your head, you egomaniac. Looks like an outdoor movie screen above my eyes. Uh. I'll tell you, God will knock you down. Um, I just say this as I close, is that delight and wonder over our redemption can fade. I'll tell you what, the one-hour workers, they were stunned, weren't they? They were stunned with what they got. And how do we, in the mercy of God, cultivate that being absolutely stunned that God would um, pour out his grace on us? Imagine that, that, uh, that you're dating a girl and, uh, and her dad's the pastor. He's a pastor of a big, powerful church. He's a strong character. He's a beautiful girl. She's, the, she's kind of the princess of the church. She was raised by the church. She's the, she's the doll baby of the church. She's a and you've been sexually active and she's pregnant. And now you're in the car and you're driving to her hometown because you're going to tell her dad face to face that his little princess is pregnant. And you can't even look at each other because you're so nervous. You can hardly even talk. This is the worst day of your lives. And if you're the guy, you know, you're driving and you're thinking, this might be the last day I'm alive on this earth, you know. I mean, he might just go all ISIS on me, right? And uh, I don't know if he's going to hit me. I don't know what I'm going to get. But you know, you're, you're filled with shame. You're filled with fear. How did we get here? We said we wouldn't. Hate yourself. And you go into his office, and you can't even look at him, and you know that something's wrong. And, uh, and you tell him that she's pregnant, and... She's sobbing, and, uh, and you're shaking. And suddenly, from out from behind his desk, he's come. And he puts his arms around the two of you, and he hugs you. And you sob and you sob. And just at the very moment you knew you would receive his condemnation, he kisses you. And through his sobs, he says, we're going to get through this together. Do you think you would ever forget that? Do you think you'd ever forget deserving wrath and receiving grace? Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Ever. Amen.